First, I want to talk about uh, something that I would call the pious bias. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we have this tendency to try to make everybody righteous in the scriptures and kind of legitimize their decisions and their behavior so that we can see them as good guys before we learn from them. And I think that's kind of a mistake because uh, except for Jesus, you know, they're all flawed, uh, all the people we read about. Uh, Jonah's my, one of my favorite examples about this. Jonah just doesn't seem like a nice guy to me at all. Uh, not, before the, not before he went to Nineveh and not after he went to Nineveh. He imperiled his whole ship, all the crew and all the other passengers on the ship because of his disobedience. Then they tossed him in the drink, and, uh, and he, so he finally submits to God because he seems to have no other choice. And he preaches this revival that's, that's a, an effective message. But then in the aftermath of that, this isn't quite as famous a part of the passage, but he goes out and pouts and says, you know, God, that's why I didn't want to go preach to him in the first place, because that's just like you to forgive them. I didn't want you to forgive them. I wanted you to smack them down. And so uh, he doesn't, he's not a loving pastor of his congregation. And so I look at the life of Jonah, and I think, all right, I, I want to be obedient so I don't you know, have to get drugged back against my will uh, into to answering God's call. But this isn't an example of I want to be more like him. I'm going to be... You know, run from God like him. I'm going to pout after God forgives people. I, I, don't, I don't want to be like Jonah. I want to be like Christ. Um, and, and we can learn some things from Jonah. But as I've read these, uh, as I've read a good bit about Esther in the last month, um, one of the things I've noticed that's kind of curious to me is almost an attempt to deify uh, Mordecai and Esther. You know, they're, they're Jewish heroes, and God used them to preserve his people, no doubt. And there comes a point where Esther makes a very heroic decision. But we don't have to make all of their decisions right. And, and in order for the story to work, we don't have to explain away all of the questionable choices that came before this, this pivotal moment in her life. And in fact, this is really, I, I think, better news for me. I think this is good news for us, that... Many people in this room have questionable decisions, maybe even dishonorable or shameful episodes in your past. But that doesn't mean you're useless to God. The decision that matters the most is the next decision that you make. And despite stuff that went on before, uh, Esther was in position to make a heroic decision and be useful for God to accomplish his will and to bless his people. Esther is sometimes compared to Jesus because she risked her life to save her people. But I think that comparison's kind of weak. You know, Jesus lived a sinless life, and he didn't risk his life. He gave his life uh, to save his people. Um, the better comparison, I think Esther's like me, and Esther's like you. Um, she suffers from kind of a messed up family situation and some questionable decisions by her uh, ancestors, grandparents, parents. Um, some questionable or even dishonorable choices uh, or situations. Some of those I don't really think she had much choice about. You know, the times were different in the ancient Near East 2,400 years ago. The king makes an invitation. I don't think it's okay to say no thanks uh, uh, back then like it would be today. But uh, she had an opportunity to be useful for God. And the good news for you and me is whatever's gone on before, you have an opportunity to be useful for God. So the question I encourage you to ask yourself today is, is, is what am I going to do with the next opportunity God presents to me? Let's put it in context. We did chapter 1 last week, and we're going to do chapter 2 this week. Uh, I want to go quickly through this part. 2,000 years ago, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, they're the patriarchs of, of Israel. 
about 1,000, not 2,000 years ago, 2,000 BC, 4,000 years ago, 1,000 BC is the golden age. You skip down to Saul, David, and Solomon. This is the one moment in history, about a generation or two, where Israel is the top dog of the Fertile Crescent, where they are the big power. And then after Solomon, uh, the kingdom divides into Israel and Judah, and both sides are disobedient. Both sides are conquered by northern neighbors, Assyria and Babylon. And after 70 years of exile, the Jews are allowed to return. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of about 20% of the Jewish population that came back from Persia to Israel. And Esther tells the story of the majority of Jews who did not come back to Israel, but in fact stayed in the land of their exile. Uh, if you wanted to put this in, if the Bible was written chronologically, Esther would come after Ezra chapter 6 and before Ezra chapter 7. Um, it comes 54 years after Zerubbabel led the first group of exiles back to Jerusalem and 25 years before Ezra leads the second group of exiles back to Jerusalem. And so that's between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. Chapter 1 starts at 483 B.C., and it, most of the action here occurs at the royal winter palace, the Persian royal palace at Susa. So what happened in chapter 1? If you weren't here last week, I'll, I'll recap quickly. 187-day celebration, six months of sort of a, a, a pre-war pep rally, and the theme is how great we Persians are, and especially King Xerxes. It's a, a celebration of the might of King Xerxes and the power of the Persian people. And then there's this seven-day banquet that culminates with some um, um, kind of a drunken party, and the women are having sort of a banquet led by Queen Vashti, and the men are having a banquet led by King Xerxes. And the Bible says that King Xerxes was merry with wine, and he decided to invite. Remember, when the king invites, no thanks is not okay. So he invites... Uh, Queen Vashti to come show off her beauty to his drunken buddies. And she says, I don't think so. Uh, and so his merriness from the wine turns into fury at her disobedience because she kind of spoiled his big celebration, right? He's trying to show off his majesty and power and his might and his glory before he goes off and invades the Greeks. And now she, his, wife, his own wife defies him and he kind of spoils his big party. So he's angry about that. He consults his advisors, and they realize, hey, this is bad for you, but this is bad for us, too, because our wives are going to do like your wife, and they're going to start defying us. So that, you know, let's send her away, uh, replace her with a new queen. He doesn't replace her right away because the whole purpose of this big pep rally thing was to get ready for battle. So there are three years that pass between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. What happened during that gap? The Bible doesn't say but your world history books say. I don't know if you've read those recently, so I'll tell you uh, what, what happened. Um, there's a war. It's the Greco-Persian War, round two. Um, round one of the Greco-Persian War was when get Darius, Xerxes' dad, lost the battle at Marathon. Um, the race Marathon is named for that city. Some of you know that story. Um, then Xerxes wins a major battle at Thermopylae. It's a very costly victory. This is one of the more famous stories that world history teachers like to tell. Movie makers like it too. The movie 300 tells the story of the Battle of Thermopylae where, where the brave Spartans defended the pass. All 300 of them died, but they held off the Persians long enough for the Athenians to get inside the walled cities and, and live to fight another day. And then the Persians lose, uh, lose once and for all the Greco-Persian War 
when they lose the naval battles at Salamis and Plataea. And from the, in the world history books, the way the story is told, the Persians go back home, they quit bullying the Greeks, and the Greeks are free to invent drama and philosophy and democracy and all the things we celebrate Greek culture for. And then a few hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, Alexander the Great's gonna come along and he's gonna spread all that Greek culture all around the world you know, before Jesus comes. So who are the, who are the characters so far? Xerxes is the king of Persia. We're going to read about him throughout the book. Vashti is his deposed wife, and she's done. After chapter 1, we don't read about her anymore. Uh, this chapter is going to introduce two new characters. Mordecai is a Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin, and his younger cousin, Hadassah, better known as Esther, uh, we're also going to meet. Uh, she's an orphan. Uh, she's been raised by Mordecai as, as his own daughter. And then we're going to need another key character in this chapter is a guy named Haggai, who's the eunuch in charge of the king's harem. And we're going to see that he kind of coaches Esther to victory in the beauty pageant. So let's get into the, uh, uh, the text and read. Uh, we're going to read all of uh, chapter 2 today. We read the first few chapters last week, but we'll, we'll read those again for background. Uh, starting with uh, chapter 1, we're going to read uh, Esther chapter 2. Verse 1, later when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So the implication here is that just that he missed her. You know, it's been three years. He went off, won some, and lost, and now he's back home. He's got no queen. Verse 2, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. In the, um, in the movie One Night with the King, um, this is portrayed as a kidnapping. You know, the guys go off and grab all the pretty girls and bring them back. I um, don't know if it happened that way. I do know that 2,400 years ago in Persia, if the king said, we want you to come to the competition, I don't think no thanks is going to be an acceptable answer. The kings of the ancient Near East were collectors. Um, David and Solomon were collectors. The Babylonian and Persian kings were collectors. They collected wealth. They collected jewelry. They collected sometimes captured kings. They would keep them in dungeons like trophies to show off how great they were. And they collected women. And, and Xerxes, this is, you know, the book of Esther tells the story. But uh, historical accounts outside the Bible also confirm that Xerxes fancied himself somewhat of a ladies' man. And so he, he collected uh, women for his harem. Verse 3, this is the rest of the advice. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So I mentioned this last week. This reminds me of a modern reality TV show. It's kind of like The Swan uh, they're going to, or Extreme Makeover. They're going to fix her all up and make them all see who turns out to be the prettiest. It's kind of like the... Uh, the, is it called America's Top Model, where there's like, there's like this competition for the best model, um, and this Haggai unit guy is kind of coaching him. And then it seems ultimately like The Bachelor, right, where, where one guy is trying to, to narrow down the field from all these beautiful women into the, the one that's, that's the most pleasing to him. And I, I guess the point of all that is, you know, we like to look back smugly on how primitive people were 2,400 years ago but I guess we have to wake up to the fact that we haven't really come all that far uh, in terms of what, what entertains us. So now we're up to the new part, verse 5. Oh, uh, something ironic about this to me, and I, you see a lot of irony in this, is what was Queen Vashti's crime? She wouldn't parade in front of the king and his drunken pals. 
And so now he's going to sort of answer that by having a whole host of women parade in front of him. So he's going to get his way one way or another. Verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Seems like a bunch of names here, but here's the, here's the news. Nebuchadnezzar, you read about him in the book of Daniel. He's the Babylonian king who, who defeated the, uh, um, the, the tribe or the, the kingdom of Judah, and he carried them off uh, into slavery and exile. And then why aren't they Babylonians now? Because the Persians defeated the Babylonians and took their Jewish captives into Persia. And so the Babylonians were the ones that conquered Judah, but then the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And all those names in the ancestry of Mordecai tell us that it wasn't Mordecai who was kidnapped and taken into exile in Persia. That was over 100 years ago. It was his great-grandparents. And so he's like fourth generation, which kind of explains the natural reason for why he, wasn't, why he was still in Persia even after Israel, uh, some of the Israelites were allowed to go back. Um, the name Mordecai is... Comes, it's a Babylonian name, and it derives from the god Marduk, some sort of like praise to Marduk or something like that, which shows how completely his parents had assimilated into the pagan culture. You know, not really good news uh, uh, if we're looking at the story from the point of view of God's people. There's a key detail here is that Mordecai came from the tribe of Benjamin. We'll get more into that next week, but just while we're on the subject, I'd like to point out there are some famous Benjaminites we've already learned about in our studies over the last, uh, last little while. Uh, maybe you recall the book of Judges. Uh, we studied that a couple years ago. Ehud, the lefty assassin, remember him? Because he was a lefty, he was able to hide his knife and plunge it deep into the fat king when he, when he assassinated him. That, was, that guy was from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul, that's the part that's going to be important next week. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. The prophet Jeremiah uh, and Paul the apostle were all Benjaminites, just as Mordecai was. Back to the text, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl who was known as Esther was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Not as, as certain about this as I am about Mordecai, but one of the theories about the name Esther is that it also derives from a pagan deity, Ishtar. Um, it also means star, and the name Hadass, I think, means myrtle. So what do we know about her? She had no parents. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai, who would have been sort of the parental authority in her life, and that's going to be important because she, she submits to his authority even when he's making questionable advice, or often questionable advice. She's called Esther. Notice that the text is silent about her character. It says people liked the way she looked, and it says she looks good. She was lovely in form and features, it says. And so sometimes we want to read in a lot of good stuff about Esther. She's going to make a heroic decision, but up to this point in the story, all we know is that people liked the way she looked. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Verse 9, the girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with, beauty, with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. So Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem, expects her to win. It looks like he sees her as the favorite. He's going to get on board. Remember, whoever becomes the queen is going to remember people who helped, the little people who helped her on the way up. And so I think he sees... 
you know, I'm going to hitch my wagon to this train because she's going to win. He, gives her, he starts treating her right right away. He coaches her on how to win. And so she's, she's going to become queen and probably uh, feel a debt of gratitude to him. Notice that part about the special food. This reminds me of another story in, in the Old Testament. She, he gave her beauty treatments and special food, which is very likely to be Persian food and very unlikely to be kosher food. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't go into graphic detail about this, but it does remind me of a, a story from a similar time. Remember when Daniel was taken to the Babylonian court and they said, we want to prime you to be a servant to the king and we're going to give you our special food. And Daniel said, I don't want any of that special food. Uh, in fact, let's take a look. Daniel 1.8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So Daniel does it very respectfully. He's sort of a model. If we're going to be, if we're going to, if we feel like obeying God requires us or puts us at odds with the law, Daniel's the model for how to do it in a respectful way. He went willingly to the lion's den when the law said that's what he needed to do. When he wanted to not eat the, 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 the royal food, he asked for permission, and he did it in a respectful way, and they kind of set up this experiment. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. Many of you know that story. Um, Esther did not take that stand. She followed Haggai's advice. Why? Because her identity was a secret. Let's read on. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai's, we're going to find this out next chapter, he wears his Judaism sort of as a badge of honor, even a badge of defiance. Now I'm not going to bow to you, Haman, because I'm a Jew. That's next week. But he encourages her to keep her Jewishness a secret to avoid prejudice. And one of the principles that I think I see here is that Esther is in a position where I believe God blesses her submission to appropriate authority, even when those decisions are questionable. Um, I'll tell a story from a few years ago. I, I often divide teachers into two categories. There are the teachers who complain about the money they make, and then there are the teachers who celebrate the schedule. Uh, I prefer to be the second kind. I have a great schedule. Um, I don't know if you know that, but uh, yeah, it's an awesome schedule. Uh, and so years ago, I, I, I had a good friend, and he and I were working together, and, and sometimes teachers get kind of grumbly about money things. And I can't remember exactly the context, but I remember he said something to me that seemed kind of simple and obvious, but it was very freeing to me. And here's what he said. Uh, seemed very wise to me at the time, and, 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 and it, it helped me with my attitude then, and, and I've kind of relied on that now. He says, it's up to you and me to answer God's call and be responsible stewards of what God's entrusted to us. And we're accountable before God for how we do that, how we respond to our authorities, how we discharge the duties that he's entrusted to us. Those duties don't include the budget of this school. The, the members of the board of this school have the responsibility for dealing with the budget and paying the teachers and, and, and figuring out what salaries to pay. They're accountable before God for how they discharge that duty. I'm not accountable before God for how they discharge their duty. I'm accountable before God for how I do my part, which includes responding to them appropriately. And I found that to be very freeing advice. And I, I, I found that in my own life, I've saved myself a lot of grief and frustration by not taking the spiritual pulse of other people, especially people who are in authority over me, that, that's, or people who, who have responsibilities that aren't mine. Now, 
I don't want to be wimpy about discharging the responsibilities that God has entrusted to me, but I found I can save myself a lot of time and energy and grief and frustration by trusting that, that people who have their own responsibilities are accountable to God. They're not accountable to me. And uh, that's, that seems kind of simple, seems kind of obvious, but I've seen a whole lot of energy wasted on, on, on not heeding that advice. And so I thought my friend gave me some pretty wise advice then, and I've come back to that a few times in the, you know, in, in from a few different directions in the intervening years. So I think Esther, even though, I mean, I think her grandparents should have gone back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, but they didn't. She wasn't even born yet. You know, how's she responsible for that decision? Mordecai's advice to, to blend in, don't let anybody know you're Jewish, you know, we, we might question that, but uh, her submission to him is, I think, put in her a position of being protected by God and blessed by God. Verse 12, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Uh, myrrh, you, you, I'm sure you re recall, that was one of the gifts given to the baby Jesus, right? Verse 14, in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So. Hegai is in charge of them before they go into the king, and Shashgaz is the one after their big night. The, uh, she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now, thankfully, the Bible doesn't go into graphic detail about how this happened, but there's a clear implication here. She goes there in the evening and returns in the morning. So it seems like this is more than just a typical beauty contest. This is more like an audition or a casting couch, it seems. Uh, and... Uh, and it strikes me as somewhat of a lonely life, at least where men are concerned, if you lose the contest. Because he's having all the beautiful women all over the empire come in to sort of submit to this process. And one of them's going to be queen. The others, you don't get to be the king's ex-concubine. Once you're the king's concubine, that's your life. And, and, and yet many of them, I think, probably never got another summons or a visit. I mean, I don't know how to feel about that. But uh, it just seems to me like... What a pathetic life for these women, um, except one gets to be the queen. Verse 14, no, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his daughter, excuse me, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Again, notice it says she won the favor of people who saw her. They liked the way she looked. It's still silent about her character up to this point. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. This is not a once upon a time story. We know exactly when it happened, or almost exactly. It happened in the year 479 BC in December, or maybe January of 478 BC. Tebeth is like, it's, one of, it's the winter month. Verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. One of the themes of Esther is you're going to see things coming in pairs. Remember, we had a banquet last week. It's the pre-war pep rally banquet, and now we have an, another banquet this week. Um, it's the new queen banquet. 
And there's going to be a lot of eating. There are going to be a pair of dinners coming up later on. So uh, you'll get hungry reading the book of Esther. Um, notice her progress. She started off as an orphan and then became concubine and then became queen. And notice that even before the threat to the Jews comes, we're going to read about that next chapter, God has placed her in a position of favor in the Persian royal court. She's in a position of power, but not too much power. Remember, she's Vashti's successor, and Vashti got in trouble for being too big for her britches. And so it wouldn't be wise for Esther to be too bold about her position as queen because you know, she, everybody remembers the example of the last queen. Let's finish the story. Verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to, to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. This is the second time this is mentioned, so that's why I mentioned that part about submission to authority. It seems like the writer of this, this, this text is emphasizing that she submitted to her appropriate family authority. And in that context, it would have been Mordecai. She wouldn't have been a, an orphan, so now I'm on my own. She would have submitted to the, the nearest male relative who took authority. The good news here, and this is really the key principle of this message, is that God blessed Esther and Mordecai and ultimately all the Jewish people not because of their obedience to the law, but in spite of their failure to uphold it. Uh, there are two clear ways where they didn't uphold the law. The prophet Jeremiah said, after 70 years, you're to go back to Jerusalem. 80% of the Jews did not go back to Jerusalem. Uh, secondly, you know, she married a pagan. You know, he was king, but he was a pagan. And, and the, the, the Old Testament makes it plain that the Jewish people weren't to marry pagans. And then... The Bible doesn't come out and exactly say this, but there's a pretty clear implication or, or a strong likelihood that she violated the dietary laws when she was eating that special food. It's very unlikely that it was kosher. And there's also a strong implication that there was um, um, marital relations before marriage um, in violation of the book of Exodus. And so the point is that despite this failure to uphold the law, God used them and blessed them and blessed his people. Aren't you glad that God's grace is not dependent on our ability to keep the law? Amen. The law is good, but the story of the Old Testament is they couldn't keep it. Uh, this, we need a Savior because we can't keep it. Um, and so God's grace overwhelms uh, our inability to uphold the law. Now, let's finish the chapter with a total a plot twist in a totally different direction, but it's going to set the stage for next week. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. So Mordecai is kind of a minor official. He's at the gate. He overhears this assassination plot. He tells his cousin, Queen Esther, who, who reports it to the king and gives her cousin Mordecai the credit. Verse 23, when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. The key detail here is that in advance of the threat to the Jews that we're going to read about next week, Esther becomes queen, and Mordecai also has ingratiated himself to the king by saving his life from the assassination plot. So both Esther and Mordecai are now in positions of favor. So what about us? 2,400 years later, what can we learn from this? Esther followed directions, and she listened and she learned. 
She submitted to her cousin Mordecai, who was her family authority. She also followed the directions of Haggai, who coached her to victory in the big contest. The most important principle, and this is really, I just mentioned this, God's grace overwhelms our past. Our failure to, our, God's grace overwhelms the dishonorable, shameful episodes of your past. The, the decision that matters most is your next decision. And then finally, and we'll see more about this later, the positions that God placed you in, God placed you in. And let's recognize those as opportunities to serve God and to be used by him to bless others and accomplish his will. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for the news uh, from this text. Lord, I thank, you that, uh, I thank you that your love and your grace and your forgiveness uh, overwhelm my past, overwhelm my sinfulness, overwhelm my, uh, my inability to uphold your, your law. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this. I ask that you would help us to, uh, if there's anyone here who hasn't received your salvation, Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand this today. And Lord, if there's anyone here who needs to respond to this in any way, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would touch them. In Jesus' name, amen.